On September 13, 2022, Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Iranian woman, was taken to hospital in Tehran, two hours after being arrested by Iran's religious police on suspicion of not wearing a headscarf properly. Three days later, she died of a cerebral hemorrhage her relatives said she sustained during her time in police custody. Amini's death sparked a wave of protests of the kind Iran had never seen before. They lasted well into the spring of 2023. Although the protest movement has since subsided, many inside Iran say the relationship of the country's young people with the state, particularly that of young women, has changed irreversibly. Now, Iranians are getting ready to go to the polls for a vote taking place on March 1st, in the 12th legislative election the Islamic Republic will have held since its founding in 1979. Welcome to the Year of Elections, a podcast series brought to you by the Opinion Desk at The National. I'm Suleiman Hakimi, The National's opinion editor, speaking to you from our studio here in Abu Dhabi. And in this series, I'll be joined by a variety of experts to take you through the votes that are shaping our world. Our episode this week is on Iran, a country of nearly 90 million people whose government is at the center of several ideological battles at home, in the Middle East, and on the international stage. One former president has already described these elections as neither free nor fair, and authorities are worried that the aftermath of the protests, widespread dissatisfaction with the economy, and general disenchantment with the country's system of governance will result in the lowest turnout the Islamic Republic has ever seen. Even so, there are thousands of candidates competing for a mere 290 parliamentary seats, and a parallel vote is taking place to elect members of the country's assembly of experts. Joining me from South Carolina in the U.S. is Dr. Arash Azizi, a senior lecturer in history and political science at Clemson University and a contributing writer for The Atlantic. Arash is also the author of a new book titled What Iranians Want, Women, Life, Freedom. I'm also joined from Tehran by Dr. Milad Dohanchi, a renowned cultural critic and entrepreneur. Milad is the author of the book Post-Islamism, Rethinking the Relationship Between Religion and Politics in Iran. So Milad, I'll turn the first question over to you. Lay out the Iranian political system for us. Iranians are going to the polls to vote for members of parliament and the assembly of experts. What role do these institutions play in the country's governance structure? Thank you very much for having me in your show. Well, the Iranian political system is rather very complex. The way things come together and the way things are assembled are, are, are hard to explain. There are basically four major elections taking place in Iran. One is the basically the presidential elections, which is the most popular that gets run every four years. There's the city council elections that used to be very yeah, exciting, but then it sort of died down, the excitement and the participation and so on and so forth. Then there is the majlis, the parliamentary elections, which is coming up soon that you mentioned. And there's also the assembly of experts. The assembly of experts are basically an assembly who is basically in charge of electing or supervising the Iranian leader. So that was supposed to be sort of like democratic touch of the way the, the leader is elected. And the leader or the supreme leader is the highest authority within the Iranian political system. Now, only those with religious training, with rather high religious training, can uh, basically become candidates for this, for this position. So not everyone can become candidates. Now, and then there is the 
parliamentary election, as you mentioned. Uh, and in this time around, these two elections are combined. So in the same day that people go to vote for their basically representatives in, in, in the parliament, which is called majlis, they also choose or they go to vote for the person that they feel is suitable to become their representative in the assembly of experts. Now, this is the nutshell of the system. There's also the Guardian Council, which is very influential in Iranian political system. And the job or the, the task of Guardian Council is basically to oversee not only the elections, but also allow who gets to run for these elections that I just mentioned. Now, some people say criteria are very tough or the Guardian Council is not bipartisan, uh, already chooses who can run and who cannot run. And for that reason, the election is not very democratic. And that has been the case since the day of the revolution. So it's not a recent dispute or a concern and so on and so forth. But the way Guardian Council has acted is rather relative according to the situation, the parties involved, and so on and so forth. So what I'm trying to say is that Guardian Council's function has always become a subject of dispute. In the recent years, it has become the subject of dispute even more intense. And we can get into it in, in the following questions. Yeah, you mentioned something interesting there that I just want to touch on. So the Guardian Council is kind of widely suspected of not being so bipartisan. And you mentioned the principalists and the reformists. So just lay out for us the political spectrum in Iran. In most countries, it's sort of a right-left issue. In Iran, it's kind of a principalist versus reformist issue. So what does that mean? Traditionally, Iranian political sort of taste or 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 fraction was divided between these two camps, the reformists and the principalists. Reform the reformists are mostly they take a more democratic position. They have much uh, liberal position on women issues, for instance, on on arts and so on and so forth. And when it comes to foreign policy, they they stand for negotiate, negotiating with the West and opening the doors for more economic relations and so on and so forth. Now, the principalists are more strict in religious observations. They are more inclined towards the revolutionary slogans, if you will. But still, like the concept of revolutionary or anglobi is, is actually a tricky one within the Iranian political system because a reformer would say, actually, we're more revolutionary. In fact, we were the revolutionaries from the get-go, and you guys were not doing as much. So what I'm trying to say is, is, is a bit complicated, the way these two camps are divided. But traditionally speaking, as I said, the reformists are more pro-West, I guess. They're more liberal when it comes to social issues, and the principalists are more observant of religious uh, issues concerning women, hijab, the headscarf, and so on and so forth. They're more strict and and they go for a more tougher stance towards the West. But what's interesting or what should be notable is that the question of reformists and the principalists do not sort of, or the divide between the two, do not reflect themselves as much when it comes to social policies such as health, such as education, such as anything internally informed. So it's not that reformists 
have more leftist approach, they're more socialist, and the principle is more of a private property, so on and so forth. So, But that's something you would really expect, that two different camps, two different political camps within the political system would have different views on, as I said, like education, housing, healthcare, so on and so forth. Not so much in Iran. So chances are reformists would take a leftist approach on the question of education and the other way around. So anything is possible. So I guess the divide is more political as opposed to social. The divide is not over social issues and the way two different policy tastes are at work. Arash, a growing number of voices inside Iran are saying that this election has been compromised. What does that mean? How does this vote compare to ones that have taken place in the past? Yeah, so let me put the election sort of a political, pers- uh, perspe- uh, political spectrum in a sort of a different perspective. Elections in, under the Islamic Republic have never been anything approaching free and fair. Most people, most political currents have never been allowed to run since, when I say never, let's say it's since 1981, maybe the first parliamentary elections, different factions were allowed to run. But so it, the elections have been limited to different wings of the Islamic Republic, really, right? So if you are a if you're a non-Islamist, and in fact, if you're an Islamist who is a slightly critical of the Islamic Republic, you've never been allowed to run. Nevertheless, many of the elections in the history of the Islamic Republic were genuinely competitive because these dif- two different wings of the regime that uh, became known from the late 90s um, onwards, as, as Milad said, as principalist and reformist, had genuine differences. Most importantly, reformists were genuinely, they wanted to democratize Iran. Now, they had differences as to um, how far they'll go and, and how fast they'll go, but they generally had a democratic sort of demands. And the elections, the parliamentary elections in 2000, where reformists and principalists both were able to run. Uh, in 2004, that wasn't really the case. And then, so there, in different years, in different years, there have been different different measures of of how much how how much measure of freedom does the Guardian Council allows the Guardian Council, um, and the Guardian Council. Let's be clear: is appointed all of its members directly or indirectly by the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. So the six of its uh, members are clerics appointed directly by Ali Khamenei, and the, the six others are appointed by the head of the judiciary, who is in turn appointed by Khamenei. But in the last few years, we've really entered a new, different source of elections. The reality is the reformist parties, which, as I said, they were all, as Milad also pointed out, they were mostly founders of the Islamic Republic. These were by no ways where they sort of outside uh, the regime in any ways. They've been effectively uh, criminalized and banned um, in the last uh, couple of decades. So in the aftermath of 2009, when there was a dispute over the presidential election, reformists a claim that Ahmadinejad had not in fact won and, and they started the street movement. Many top reformist figures were thrown in prison for many years. There was a short trial. Uh, many of them spent six, seven years in jail. The main two political parties of the reformists were banned. Um, and, and after that, things opened up a little in the mid-2010s, um, but they were never really ever allowed uh, open activity of, uh, uh, of the sort that they were able to have from late 90s um, before 2009. Um, also, of course, in that period, a lot of people, a lot of Iranians were not as into them anymore, let's say around 2005, because they believed that President Khatami had not been able to realize his promises of a standing up to the Supreme Leader and democratizing the country. So they suffered from a dual, the reformists suffered from a dual problem in much of these years, that their popularity declined because they were not able to stand up to 
the establishment and uh, whenever they did something of uh, standing up, they were banned and curtailed by the regime itself. But it's very important to realize that in the last two parliamentary elections, that's in 2020 and now 2024, even that little modicum of of allowing a competition between reformists and principles has been taken away effectively. Most reformists are not allowed to run. Vast majority of reformists have been disqualified. In the last elections in 2020, 80 sitting MPs uh, were already disqualified from running. This time around, 30 more sitting MPs uh, are running. And in fact, not just uh, reformists, even principalists who were slightly critical um, of the status quo or, or were pro Hassan Rouhani. Rouhani, the former president himself, was actually a principalist in, in general terms, but you know, he was he took a very pro-Western foreign policy. When I say pro-Western in the Iranian spectrum, i.e., he was in favor of negotiations with the US. Of course, he's he was able to achieve the nuclear deal of 2015. So his camp became known as the moderationist, if you will, as a split from the principalists. These were moderationists, centrist conservatives is how I sometimes translate it. Even them, they were not allowed to run in 2020, mostly. They were not allowed to run in 2020, the, in the last presidential election of 2021. So really, so really what we, we have witnessed this time around is that this is really a competition between uh, various levels of of principalists or conservatives, as as you might want to call them, we, who are all very poor regime, who are all very supportive of Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader. And this is the other part to remember. We had all this conversation about, oh, Iran has a complex political system. There's this body, there's that body. But the reality is that the Khamenei supreme leader has called all the major shots in the last 10 or 20 years. His power has expanded to include everything. So the parliament is sort of made meaningless in two ways. First of all, because it doesn't matter what the parliament does so much as it wouldn't do anything against Khamenei. And in fact, some of the even basic function of legislative um, duties are now passed to sort of other bodies in which are more directly tied to Khamenei. That's in one way. And the other way, uh, the second way in which they, they, the parliament has turned meaningless is that, as I said, the reformists are effectively not allowed to run. So I'll, I'll just end with saying that um, last time, in last parliamentary elections, had the lowest participation rate as, at, at 40-something percent. This time, it's expected to be even lower. As I said, it's entirely a competition between different principalists. It's rarely about politics. It's effectively about different figures who are fighting over who can get more benefits from the Iranian state in some way or the other. Some local places, there are genuine sort of competitions. As I said, some um, reformists have tried to um, use even the few people who are disqualified here and there to participate. There are some many respected sort of reformist scholars or, or, or figures who believe even if we can vote for five candidates around the country, we should uh, go out and vote. But likely, um, likely there would be um, be little participation from most people. And and yeah, I'll, I'll end with saying that. So the calls for boycotts are also very important. They've come from very important figures. Uh, Said Hajarian, the leading theoretician of the reformists, has said he won't vote, as he didn't also in 2020. And the leading figure of the reformists, the former deputy interior minister under Khatami, under President Khatami, who is in jail, has also declared that he calls for a boycott of the votes. And of course, even when he did it in prison, they they put more restrictions on him in prison and they sort of limited his visiting hours. So that's, I think that's sort of more telling of the political spectrum if we look at it more broadly.
Yeah, so Milad, what I'm hearing from Arash is basically that the, the system has been arranged over time so that there's it's only shades of conservatism or principalists rather than reformists. But I guess what I want to ask you is you're in Tehran right now. Could you tell us, like, is there any role at all for public opinion in these elections? Does public opinion still matter in the Iranian political system? Well, when we speak of Iranian political system and the role of public opinion, we should take into account that, or we should ask whether we're considering the official spectrum or the official discourse or the non-official discourse. For instance, the case of hijab was never thought to be something to be to be up for grabs and up for negotiation at all. You would thought regime would decline or would, would go down, but would, but hijab would be there. But the protests happened, the cost of maintaining social order at the level that that was assumed to be very costly. So hijab is quote-unquote freed now. Women come to streets without headscarf. You take that as a case where public opinion has been factored in within the political system? Of course, yes. But they're not really free, Milad, right? They're not really free. There have been people who put in jail. Many cafes have been closed. There was a woman who was lashed because she published a picture without a job. And a more stringent compulsory hijab law has been passed by the parliament. It's not true that they're free at all. And there are people going to jail every day for, for not doing a job. It just has been, a li- the enforcement has been a little more lax in the, last, in the last little while. Well, not that the way you're describing it is wrong. But walking the streets of Tehran or being in a restaurant, I was at a restaurant last night in, in, in almost in the Vanak district. And I saw four women sitting there without a job, like having pizza. This is not something you would see, you would have seen a year ago at all. Like that was not imaginable. So when we talk about freedom, we're talking about freedom in its very relative terms. Of course, the conservatives or how we would even describe those fractions, the hardliners, I guess. They're still calling, they're still dreaming a country full of hijab. I mean, on Valias Street, Chara Valias, there's still police officers and some some sort of disguise in, 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 in ordinary dress, stand there with a camera, and I've been there and witnessed these situations, with a camera still saying, yo, girl, please take a, put your hijab on. But they don't do anything at all. Like girls walk by and they just ignore them. That's not something you would have seen a year ago. Like that was not even an option. So obviously, political the political system in Iran has taken into account the public opinion that look, this cost is too much to enforce. This doesn't get us anywhere. At least there has been some uh, some I guess rational thinking involved here. But that doesn't mean that the very desire to still enforce the, the hijab. So I, I brought that as an example of how the system is really... See, that's the thing, like the Iranian political system and the way it functions and the way the political apparatus relates to social apparatus is very complex. It's very complex. Even the divide sometimes. What Arash was describing was pretty much accurate concerning major cities. But you go to small cities... People can't care less about principalists nor reformists. They're a bunch of tribes, I guess, <laughs> that they fight for, and they're competing for whoever can become elected, reflecting their interests. So in those cities... I agree with you there. I agree with you there. I just want to say that I do agree that in different parts of the country, 
there are people, what really matters is that if the person running from the city A or city B is going to get elected and sometimes they're officially not even affiliated with, the, you know, with any political camp. So I do agree that. I do agree. Yeah, that. I mean, I make a lot of trips in Iran and I have a villa in the north of uh, Iran. And when I go to north, to small cities of the north, people, the way they perceive political system is very local. They say, oh, Mr. Falani and Mr. Falani, they represent us. So let's go vote because we're going to screw them. Because if they come to power, we're not going to get as much house renting or whatever. Like our government loans or bankrolls sort of taking care of. Yeah, well, Milad, that's an interesting point because one of the big issues in this election, presumably that's on everyone's minds at least, is the economy because inflation is at like near 50% in Iran. The country's under sanctions. So it's been in a bad way economically for some time. Do you think that factors in at all to what politicians are thinking? No, not at all. As, as I said, like the, for, in the small cities, uh, it's basically, it's really an identity politics. I guess that's how I can frame it. Identity politics uh, operates uh, in a massive scale in small and local areas. Uh, so our guys need to win. Uh, but uh, if our guys win, then chances are we're going to be taken care of economically. We can have more access to government loans and so on and so forth. But what your it is clientelism. I, yeah, I agree. But no, the way your question is formed is whether sort of election is perceived at a very structural level. So citizens are thinking. Okay, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna vote for principalist. I'm gonna vote for reformist, or I'm I'm gonna vote for X and Y because if X and Y come to power, they're gonna have more socialist policies, and that is not under this slate. I guess that is not the issue in the Iranian political system, and that is a problem. It's not a strength of the system. The fact that the political, actually, political issues are actually not turned or translated to to social policies and vice versa. And then these can sort of turn into um, various demands at a political level and then be negotiated in different elections. So that, of course, is a problem. Now, regarding what Arash was saying about the history of elections, again, I agree with the broad picture that he drew. But what I would add, or I would defer to say that it has only been in the recent times, especially in the recent elections, both parliamentary and the presidential, that the issue of disqualification has become a central issue within the political system. Those standing outside has always been uh, calling the system undemocratic and so on and so forth. But only in the last two elections that the question of Guardian Council and its role became subject of dispute. Okay, I just want to ask one final question for both of you. The political system, as both of you have pointed out, is getting narrower and narrower uh, with the reformists being edged out. Is there a way out of that pattern? I mean, do the reformists ever have any hope of pushing real reform through the system by electoral means? Yeah, so let, let me very sort of briefly say also what, what I think really does matter in these elections and what I watch out for myself next week. Because I spent uh, dozens of hours in the last few days, more than anyone I know in Iran, my, my family or friends, uh, to like look at different lists. If I didn't think the elections don't matter at all, I, would, I wouldn't have done that. 
So what really matters, these fights inside uh, principalists or hardliners really is a better term, um, and the young generation, these are people who want a part of the state, these fights really do matter. The, the number one question is, will Bukhalibov, who is the current speaker of the parliament, come on top in Tehran? I think in Tehran, maybe something like 20% of people will vote um, at most, 20, 25 at most. So the question is, will Qalibov come on top or will he lose his slate at the top? And presumably, if he doesn't become the top Tehran MP, he doesn't get the most votes in Tehran, will he? Will that lead to him losing his position as the Speaker of the Parliament, right? And why would that be important? Why would that matter? Uh, yeah, so let me just quickly say there are two ways in which that can happen. One of which is that this other younger principalists vote against him. Some of them are been campaigning against him very vociferously. It didn't help that a few days ago, a channel leaked and the Canadian government confirmed that Qalibov's son had been applied and rejected for immigration to Canada. His documents leaked that showed in just one bank account alone, he had $300,000 in a bank account. So obviously, a lot of other principalists are attacking him as a corrupt figure because of this. Uh, leading, among them, le- leading among them is a 39-year-old guy called Ali Akbar Raifripur. He's known as a conspiracy theorist. He runs an association called Association to Fight Zionism and Masonism, uh, but he has an online following. The question is, can they get enough votes to dislodge Alibov uh, from, from the top? Uh, I don't think so, but they might. This is one way it can happen. The other way is that those reformist sort of centrist people that I talked about will vote for at least headed by Motahari that would dislodge Khalibov. Why would it matter? Because, and so, and here's why both elections sort of matter in this way, Assembly of Experts and Speaker of Parliament. Look, Iran, in my opinion, is headed for a massive political crisis and conflagration at the death of Ayatollah Khamenei. He might come before him as well, but certainly Ayatollah Khamenei is not 84. He'll be 85 in a couple of months. And when his death comes, and there's a lot of conversation about succession, I won't get into it here. We can have another show about that. But whatever it is, there will be a lot of fights between different uh, factions. And, and who holds what position will be important there? For example, if there is, let's say, a slate of new conservative MPs headed by a sort of really strange guy like Raifi Poor in the parliament, that's going to have a role. And if Khalibov continues, Khalibov has been very politically ambitious all his life. He ran for president many times. I've spoken to him uh, before. He's the sort of figure who really has ambitions for his future and wants political power. I don't think he's, he's big on a lot of Islamist principles even. He just wants political power. So w- what kind of positions they'll have um, in the parliament it's going to it's going to matter in one way or in the other in those political struggles. As for reformists and whether they'll be allowed to use, as some have called for now, look, it's a basic question. In Iran right now, as I said, all power is, is in the hands of Tullah Khamenei. Political power is a real thing, right? Institutions don't have power unless uh, there is sort of material grants for them. And Tullah Khamenei exer- exercises his power through his relationship with the organization we haven't mentioned, and that's IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. This is a militia that controls most of Iranian politics, most of Iranian economy now, and I really mean most when I say it, effectively controls 50-60%, if not more, of the Iranian economy. So really, and Ayatollah Khamenei has not really trained the next uh, generation of clerics, so I don't, I think clerical rule in Iran doesn't really have a future. Most of this parliament, not a principalist or reformist, most of their figures are not clerics anymore which is an interesting uh, fact also when you look at the history of Islamic Republic. So really, the reformists don't really have a place in this political system. They have very little popular support, and they have, they've been driven out of house of power. So they're, in this, they're really in these conditions. So the future of Iran is likely to be decided in an interplay between 
different parts of the political establishment, the IRGC, and various popular civic movements who will have to find their way. And the reformist figures who do consider themselves related to them, like Mustafa Tajzadeh in prison, was called for a campaign of civil sort of disobedience, civil resistance. They'll have to find a way to uh, be able to use this sort of civic movements to uh, to pressure politics and uh, sort of make a change there. But there is one thing that, that does remain the fact that Iran never makes for a dull moment. And uh, again, the reason we're having these conversations, uh, you couldn't have this conversation about ele- elections in Syria um, or, or many other places, right? Because they, there does exist a, a large degree of sort of social uh, contestation and Iranian people will have always surprised any uh, any sort of Iran observer and myself and others not to, not to an exception. Thanks. And Milad, we'll end with you. So do, do you think that there is still a place for reformists in Iranian society and elections? Well, uh, as I tried to allude in my previous responses, that the divide between the principalist and the reformist are more or less gone. Even the principalist are no longer principalist. We're dealing with uh, younger generations, those who've actually been qualified to run a friend of mine that is actually it's a woman. She's a friend of mine, and she's a university professor, and she's really not a reformist, but I know for a fact that she's not a principalist. I've gone to her house, and I've seen the way she runs herself. And on Instagram, she sent me a message say, okay, you don't want to promote me? And I was like, okay, wow, you've become qualified. Okay, good. <laughs> is she a reformist? Is she a principalist? Is she calling for a certain political agendas concerning health, concerning education, concerning foreign policy, not that I know of. So I guess I can say that this election around in particular is an election that those who are running, they're not representing anybody really, because it was a choice provided to the state apparatus after the aftermath of Masai's sort of uprising that what would you like to do? Do you want to basically loosen up things a little bit and allow for more, for more, I guess, freer political environment to appear? Or you want to hold your grounds? You want to go hard? I think the decision ultimately was that on non-official apparatus, we're, we're going to loosen up things. But on the official side, we're still going to maintain the same uh, momentum. And that's what I'm hearing, at least. Nobody's talking about this to me, but this is what it's heard looking at the political system as a whole, that non at the non-official level, there are ways for, for all sorts of all sorts of contestations and then so on and so forth. But when it comes to the political realm, things seem to be very tough. And we were hoping, at least as, as a young person living in Iran, that state would not take this route and loosen up things not at the non-official level but actually at the at an official level and allow for a for a for a more uh, i don't know what the right word is i guess more democratic election and and that would have helped not so much the turnouts but has all would have also helped as implicitly mentioned training of new politicians that's that's, as i said there's a major vacuum okay i'm gonna vote who am I going to go for? I don't see politicians at work. Chances are a lot of these people that are running, they're younger than me even, and I have more political experience than them. So that that is a, that is a very technical problem that the Iranian political system is doing. Now, concerning in the future, the life of Ayatollah Khomeini, would, as Arash also alluded to, plays a role here. Until he's alive, I think there is a sort of a non-written rule at the national level that we're going to tolerate the situation as it is. 
So no one talks about it, but players are looking at each other's hand and they're like, okay, you know what? Let's not rock the boat so much. Let's just take it as it is. Again, nobody says that, but you don't see major contestation, for example, coming from Rome or if or Hassan Rouhani is disqualified. He can go for a more tougher stand. Khatami can go for a tougher stand, but they rather stay quiet. And why they do that? Because for some reason, as I said, play, different players are have decided to play conservatively for now. and and But we have to wait for that moment. And that moment is a critical moment because we're going to have a major vacuum in the Iranian political system. In that vacuum, would those who are in the parliament or even in assembly of experts really matter? I don't know, because the last election, presidential election, President Raisi came to power in a situation very similar to what we just described. And when the mass uprising was taking place, no one was make, was holding Raisi responsible or were not even talking to him. No one cared. No one cared at all. It's very interesting because when Ahmadinejad had become elected in 2009 election, he was an antagonist. People say, okay, Ahmadinejad, they would make fun of Ahmadinejad. Ahmadinejad for the reformist side or a fraction of society was an antagonist. This time around, Racy was not <laughs> was not an antagonist at all. So it seemed like people didn't take him seriously at all. So when that moment comes, when moment of political fraction of political vacuum appears, I don't think it really matters for the Iranian society then that who is in the parliament or who is in the assembly expert. Uh, as much. Some do not agree with, with my analysis and would say that it's very important as to who gets elected in, in the assembly of experts because at the end of the day, they are the one uh, choosing the next leader. I don't buy that analysis much because I think street demonstrated that has a force. Iranian streets uh, demonstrated that, mm, that there is some momentum there and that momentum brings people down, gets big guys to bow down to their wishes. So um, this election, uh, uh, at a, uh, I, I would agree that the turnout is not going to be much, yeah. specifically in Tehran. It's going to be a, a more or less cold election, but the actual election is not now. It's coming in the near future. That's a good place to leave it. That's all for this week from Year of Elections. Special thanks to our guests, Arash Azizi and Milad Dokhanchi. This episode was produced by Doa Farid and Arthur Edison, and I've been your host, Suleiman Hakimi. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to find us on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. <laughs>